0: Hi there, I'm Jonathan Platt, and this is Direct Line, the absolute best podcast in the Baylor family. Now, I hate to beat a dead horse, and actually, what I really hate is using that cliche. I just have a general disdain for all cliches, but that one seems pretty bad. But, anyways, hasn't this year just plain sucked? I mean, for so many reasons, it feels like we're each in our own individual street fight with 2020 and every single person it's ever known. It's been really hard for me, for our team, and I'm sure it's been really hard for you too. One of the biggest questions I found myself coming back to over and over again over this past few months is how do you lead when the world is so certain? I mean, when you don't even feel like you have your own footing, how do you help others find theirs? Leading in uncertain times is a real struggle, even for the most seasoned leaders, You can feel like you're lost in a fog and can't find the guidance you need to gain clarity for you, your team, your organization, and your clients and audience. How can you get from where you are to being the leader your organization desperately needs, especially when everything between here and there just feels like a mist? In this episode, I'm very excited to discuss how to create a compelling vision feel empowered and energized to lead with confidence and grow your organization using a simple, inspiring, and practical framework developed by Michael Hyatt. Michael's a 1977 graduate of Baylor University and is also the founder and CEO of Michael Hyatt & Company, a leadership development firm specializing in transformative live events, workshops, and digital and physical planning tools. He's formerly the chairman and CEO of Thomas Nelson, And he's also a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestselling author of several books, including Living Forward and Platform. His work has been featured by the Wall Street Journal, Forbes Incorporated, Fast Company, Business Week, Entrepreneur, and on and on and on. Michael's been married to his wife, Gail, for 39 years. They have five daughters, three sons-in-laws, and eight grandchildren. And they live just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Now, I'm talking to Michael specifically because his latest book, The Vision-Driven Leader, will help you discover how you can create a clear and compelling vision to grow your organization. And honestly, who doesn't need that right now? In this episode, you're going to hear why you need a vision for your organization now more than ever. What questions you can ask yourself to find that vision. How Michael's time at Baylor and in Waco shaped his future into what it is today, How Michael came to create his signature vision framework for leaders, what one resource Michael wished he had had in every career transition of his life, and how to sell your boss on anything. I'm so excited for you to hear this episode, my interview with Michael Hyatt. I had a lot of fun trying to find stories uh, of you on campus, um, and find stories of you like back at Word and places like that. Um, so it was it was really cool to to chat with some folks about uh, knowing all of the Thomas Nelson and then Michael Hyatt and company like era, but to go back in time to when you were you know just another student on campus. So it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I started at Word when I was at a student, and there were so many Baylor students and people you know that were working at word yeah and of course gerald mccracken yeah you know that's where he started and you know too bad he's still not around Uh because yeah he was a legend yeah
0: yeah and there's not actually been a really good uh like feature piece on the importance of word in the Waco community. Uh, there were like a couple of things whenever he died, um, you know, just kind of like pseudo obituaries. Um, but there's never really been any big thing uh, about word in Waco. So it's actually a story that we're pursuing now as well. Um, that I kind of find out from researching you. Well, I want to talk about Word, um, but I want to start back at the beginning, uh, the cliche question of, you know, when you were a small town boy in Nebraska, why did you decide to choose Baylor?
1: Well, first of all, my family moved to Waco when I was in the ninth grade from Nebraska. And so I went to um, that last year of junior high or middle school, I think we called it junior high back then. Mm-hmm. And then high school, uh, Richfield High, which no longer exists. I think it was uh, melted into Waco High. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just felt like you know it was local. I'd heard great things about it. I intended to be a music major, and you know it had a huge reputation for that. Plus, um, to be honest, I, I became a Christian when I was eighteen, and so some of the people that I was involved with. You know were were people that were from Baylor, mm-hmm. and I don't know they just I just was more drawn by the people than anything, and at the time, I was a southern Baptist yeah and uh, Baylor was Southern Baptist at that time
0: which church did you go to when you were in
1: Waco- uh, Highland Baptist church
0: Highland cool, cool so I met my wife yeah, I've been married now for forty two years, but yeah. Highland has had like a huge resurgence over the past couple of That's years. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. Some really, really cool stuff. I would say of the six interns that I have, I think at least three of them go to Highland. Wow. Yeah.
1: Well, I was there uh, when Gary Smalley was there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember him, but he was kind yeah. of a world renowned author, ended up being, he wasn't when I, he was just my college pastor, but his wife introduced me to my wife, Gail. And then he did our premarital counseling and performed our wedding.
0: Cool. Very cool. I've never met him, but I've heard a lot about him, especially obviously from from Highland students in that era. So
1: Yeah, he's a he's amazing. He's gone now. He's been dead about maybe three or four years. Oh, ah, okay. But his wife's still alive.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's so many people um that are on my list of catching them uh before their voices are gone, you know. Um, so and it's always great to uh lose someone but to find out that somebody did catch them in an oral history or something like that. So another question is, um, what did you hope to get out of Baylor when, when you first decided to come here? I know you said that you'd just become a Christian and the people were a really good part of it, but you, know, you wanted to be a music major. Did you have higher goals other than just being a music major and getting into the, the music industry?
1: Yeah, I, I actually uh, switched to philosophy with the intention of going to seminary, so you know i wanted I wanted to go to Southwestern Seminary, and I intended to go into the ministry in fact, while I was at Baylor, I had a part time gig a weekend gig at Hilltop Lakes Church in uh, college Station just outside of college station. It was a retirement community, and so Gail and I would drive down there, I think it was about eighty miles, and we'd drive down there like on a Saturday afternoon, and come back on a Sunday night, and uh, it was it was crazy, man. I mean, it was like I was so busy. Then I had a part time job during the week at Word, yeah. and uh, I just fell in love with the publishing business. And I thought, you know, this is my home. This is what I want to do. And so I started in sales at Word, and then went into marketing, and then editorial. And I can we can go to more detail on that if you
0: want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what you, you mentioned, uh, Gary Smalley, but who were some other influences at your time as a student at Baylor? Do you remember any cool professors you had? Um,
1: yeah, I'm trying to think of his name in the philosophy department. I don't think he's there any longer. Mm. Um, from what yeah. I
0: understand, the philosophy department has done a lot of restructuring, and it's now like more of a classics and great text department. So he may still be here, just not. Uh...
1: Well, it's Dr. Baird.
0: Okay, that name sounds really familiar.
1: So Dr. Kilgore was the chairman. Okay. And he was a trip. Mm-hmm. Just a quick quick story about him. Yeah. So I took a, a, a course in ancient Greek philosophy. So I walk into the class, and this guy's just a little bit. I don't know, aloof. And so he, he pulls open this text of uh Plato and he says, I would prefer that you read this in Greek. But if you must, you can read it in English. <laughs> and we're all looking at each other like, is he serious?
2: Yeah.
1: I had yeah, so I, another another professor that was a, a big influence on me, and I had six courses with him was uh Dr. Richard Cutter. Yeah. who was a Greek professor.
0: Yeah, he wrote the textbook. He did. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, Still got a copy somewhere.
0: He, he's, he's no longer teaching, and they no longer use that textbook. But my first day of Greek, uh, I went up to the professor afterwards, and I said, how come you don't use Dr. Cutter's book anymore? And he said, well, he's no longer here to tell us to use it.
1: <laughs> he was such a character, man. Yeah. My, and It's, it's funny because this is bringing back so many memories, but one of the things he said to us, he, he said, you know, he would always say to us, he said, uh, better to remain quiet and be thought wise than to open your mouth and remove all doubt.
0: Hmm. <laughs> I'm from East Texas, and we have a saying similar to that, but I can't repeat it uh, out loud. <laughs> um, so uh, are you still in touch with any of your friends that you went to Baylor with?
1: Let me just think here for a second. Not really. I'm in, I'm in, no. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, do you know Dr. Steve Eisenbarth? Mm-mm. He's uh, was a, I don't know if he's still a professor there, but he was a good friend. We lived together okay. uh, there at Baylor, but he was a physics professor and he does a lot of teaching in North Korea, believe it or not.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Really cool. That I don't know if he's still
1: cool. on the faculty there or
0: not. Yeah, you're naming all, I thought I knew everybody at Baylor. You're naming all these names that uh, I'm not familiar with, but that's cool. There's a lot of stories here. And you said y'all lived together? Was he a professor at the time or were you roommates? No,
1: he was a graduate student at the time. Okay. I'm just looking at his LinkedIn profile. It says, Hury University of Information Mm. and Communication Technology. Mm. I've never heard of that.
0: Mm-mm, but he's got baylor
1: university listed too
0: cool cool cool, cool. um so and then uh it, it's it, it, well i guess that question's moved um so you'll turn i hate to put this out on the record but you'll turn 65 in june is that right
1: yeah i can't believe <laughs> it but yeah it's true. i feel 35 oh. but yeah
0: that's great. That's really great. Uh, so you'll turn 65 in June. And uh, looking back, how uh, did Baylor prepare you for those four decades in between graduation and now?
1: You know, I think it, it gave me a liberal, and in the best sense of that word, a liberal arts education and a, and a sort of a Christian worldview but without, I don't know how to say this exactly. You need to word this better than I'm about to say it. <laughs> but without it being sort of fundamentalistic,
2: mm, yeah.
1: But just sort of an appreciation for the arts and for, um, you know, just education in general. Yeah. And I think liberal arts. I, I mean, I still to this day have such a bias in terms of hiring people that come from the liberal arts because I don't, I don't work in an area that's like engineering or science where it requires technical. Expertise, but I want somebody that's broadly educated and conversant with ideas and arguments and all the rest.
0: Yeah, Baylor's on a big push right now to go to um, whatever that classification is R one, N one, a top tier research college, emphasis on publication and research and blah 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 and grants. Grants are the big thing right now. Um, Mm. Did you know uh, Jeter Baysden when you were here? Okay. I think he came in the 80s. Um, But uh, I was close with Jeter before he retired. And he said that when he came, the emphasis was on uh, teaching and mentoring. And then if you wanted to, publishing. Uh, And he said now that he is, I think he left at the end of last year. He said the emphasis is clearly on grants and research. Then you teach. And if you have time, you mentor. Um, And that's a lot of the old professors are really, you know, uh, in their final years, when you know what are they what's Baylor going to do fire them they're already retiring anyways, but they're really kind of um, throwing some shade on that emphasis on being uh, whatever the classification is in research so
1: that's so interesting, yeah
0: yeah. Yeah, it's but it goes back to what you said. It's all about it's all about the people. That's such a common theme of why people come to Baylor is they say, well, I saw the campus. It was beautiful. I you know, I knew I wanted to do this and Baylor was the best in that department. But then I came to campus and I met people or then I knew somebody who went to Baylor and they just so it's 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 really great to hear you confer that, um, as well. And so, uh, so let's talk about some people, uh, after Baylor. Um, and like you said, before graduating, uh, you were at word and then you left, um, to start, uh, I, I cannot pronounce his name. I've tried a thousand times. Wogelmuth. Is that correct? It's pretty
1: close. Yeah. Okay. Robert Wogelmuth.
0: Yeah. And it's, yes. and it's, and it's Bob and Bobby Wogelmuth, right?
1: Right. Yeah. But he goes by Robert now. Yeah. Yeah. And his wife, Bobby died Mm. a few years ago and he's remarried. Okay. But so he was um, like my second boss at Baylor. Yeah. So when I first went to Baylor and this would have been a guy that I was still in touch with from Baylor, David Dunham. Did you ever come across that name? Mm -mm. David Dunham. He died two years ago. This is the bad thing about getting old. All no, your
0: wait. Off. wait, I do. I do remember this. Yes. Um, I think I read an obituary about him two years ago. That name rings a bell now that you said he's. Yeah,
1: he died. He died tragically of cancer and it was, he was one of my very best friends. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, and his family all lives in Nashville now, but um, so he hired me a word. Mm. And then I actually left and went on staff with an organization called the Navigators.
2: Yeah.
0: Dawson Trotman.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I did that for two years and um, then I went back to word and Robert Walgamuth hired me at word. So he was the vice president of marketing. He hired me as the director of marketing.
2: Okay.
1: So this, this is a funny story. He said to me, he said, look, he said, "Uh, I really like you. And we really hit it off. He said, "But you don't have any marketing experience. You've got sales experience cuz that's what I did at Word before, but you don't have any marketing experience and you're going to have to do a lot of writing in this job, you know, writing of advertising copy and all that kind of stuff." And I don't know how I did it, but I sold him into giving me a shot. And so he did. And so um, yeah, so that was like my my first non-sales job at, at Word and I had responsibility for uh the marketing team there. I had about 5 people working for me. Yeah. And the first day on the job, he said to me, he said, we've got a new book coming out. It's our biggest book this fall by Charles Swindoll. And it's called Improving Your Serve, which was like his first mega hit. Yeah. And I said, I need you to write an ad for this book. And it's got it and it's due tomorrow. Well, I'd never written advertising copy before. So I, I went to the bookstore. I bought about three books on how to write advertising copy. I stayed up all night, and I wrote this ad, and I turned it in, and he said, yeah, that's pretty good.
0: <laughs> that, was, that,
1: was, that was the start.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, the, the chapel in Truitt is named after Swindoll now. It, oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's beautiful. So, so you and Robert left to go start, um, again, Wugelmouth <laughs> – Welcome, Ethan Hyatt. Welcome, Hyatt. Okay, and uh, it after after you started it, it was reabsorbed by Word, correct?
1: Yeah. So what happened was we started that business in 1986. So I'd worked at Thomas. I came to I moved to Nashville. Well, let me back up. Yeah. So I was working at Word. Robert left Word to come to work at Thomas Nelson.
2: Yeah.
1: And he was the uh, vice president of marketing at Thomas Nelson. I had moved on to the editorial department and become the associate publisher in the editorial department, but my boss was such a micromanager.
2: Mm.
1: And I could tell you stories, but, I mean, he was like, he wanted me to keep a log of everything I did every 15 minutes, and then at the end of the day, we had to get together, and I had to report on what I did that day. And I, I, I could handle it for about three months, and I said, I got to get out of here. So Robert offered me a job to move to Nashville and come to work at Thomas Nelson. So I left that job, which at the time was kind of my dream job to be in an editorial. You know, marketing was okay, but, you know, editorial was you're working on projects that are going to last a lot longer than a magazine or advertising copy or whatever. Yeah. So um, I moved to Nashville in 1984. Gail and I moved. And I worked there for two years. It was really a rough time for Thomas Nelson. There was kind of a downturn mm-hmm. uh, then in the mid-80s, mid and Thomas Nelson went through some tough trouble. And so Robert and I were frustrated with kind of the working environment. They wouldn't let us do anything, you know, because they were just very tight on money and everything. So we said, well, we're going to start a, our own publishing company. So we left, we raised money, we started this publishing company. And uh, the company did phenomenally well, we published Oral Hershiser's, uh, bio autobiography. And I don't know if you remember him. Do you remember him? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so that was like our first New York Times bestseller And everything took off like a rocket. We got into a distribution relationship. This is going to get complicated, so don't let me lose you. Yeah. We got into a distribution relationship with Word because we thought what we need is more distribution. Word at that time was very distracted, and they didn't give our line of books the attention that they should have. So our sales plummeted to about 10% of what they had been before we entered into that distribution relationship with Word. Mm. Word started... Essentially, paying us a sales advance or loaning us money against future sales, but they never materialized. The future sales never materialized. Word was owned by ABC Cap Cities, Mm -hmm. and so about nine months after that relationship began, ABC Cap Cities, unbeknownst to us, decided that they were going to sell Word. Yeah, and they needed to clean up their balance sheet, and so they told us, and we by this time we had essentially borrowed about a million two from them. And they told us that we had 30 days to repay the 1.2 million or they were going to basically shut us down, you know, possess, take possession of every, all of our contracts and all of our inventory and everything. And we couldn't come up with the money and that's exactly what they did. Mm. So we didn't even have enough assets to go bankrupt. (laughs) So there was nothing to distribute. We were like broker than broke.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so at that time, um, we decided to start a literary agency, Robert and I. So our our friendship weathered that the demise of that business. But then we started a literary agency, and all of our top authors we started representing as literary clients. Okay. So we ran that business uh, pretty successfully for a number of years, and I just decided I really missed the publishing environment, actually doing publishing. Mm-hmm. So Robert and I parted company uh, amicably. He bought me out of my part of the business and by the way when when we went quote bankrupt word basically absorbed that entire business and just okay. took it on as part of their yeah. product line so um i went back to thomas nelson in 1998 but my probably the first big milestone is i became the publisher of nelson books i tell the story in in the new book mm-hmm. the vision driven leader did they send you a copy of that
0: yeah yeah uh, jim sent me the digital yeah
1: okay cool yeah so i tell the story in that book but In the year 2000, I became the publisher of Nelson Books. At that time, that division of the company, unbeknownst to me, was dead last in every significant financial metric. It was dead last in terms of revenue growth, dead last in terms of profit margin. And it was turning around that division. Sam Moore, the CEO of the company, said, how long is it going to take it to turn this division around? I thought maybe about three years. I was just kind of guessing. He said, that sounds fine. But, and this is apropos to the book, the first thing I did was I went off and came up with kind of a vision, a written, little written vision of what I wanted to see three years from that point. And it didn't take us three years. It took us a year and a half. We went from number 14 to number one, and that division remained the number one profit producing division in that company until I left in 2011. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay, let's, uh, let's jump back to Waco uh, really quick. Um, yep. I've, got some, I've got some names that may spark some uh, remembrances. Uh, so uh, we already talked about uh, Gerald McCracken. Uh, he was the founder of Word. Uh, did you ever work with Roland Lundy? Absolutely, yeah. yeah.
1: So yeah. I was in the publishing division, book publishing division. Yeah. We were kind of the redheaded stepchildren of the company. Yeah. Because it was a music business, right? And so Roland at the time was the head of all of sales at Word when I went there. Uh-huh. But he was like the cool kind of jock guy. He was like the guy that everybody else wanted to emulate and be like. Yeah. And he was a good friend of my boss, Robert Wagamuth. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he went on from there, as you probably know, but he became the president of Word.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: So Thomas Nelson ended up acquiring Word. And Roland was that was the head of that for a long time.
0: Yeah. Uh, what about uh, Stan James? Yeah, he did music as well.
1: Stan was a good friend, and uh, he and I even connected more when he moved to Nashville mm. and became the head of Star Song, founded Star Song Records. But uh, he was also one of the cool kids at Word, one of the the music guys that you know had such an impact on Amy Grant's career and Michael W.
0: Smith and people like that. What about uh, Don Kaysen? I, I
1: didn't really know Don very much. I mean, I knew I knew what he did, and we had some were occasionally in meetings, but didn't really know yeah. him very well.
0: Yeah, uh, Stan Moser,
1: definitely Stan. Yeah. yeah, Stan was another guy that uh, you know was one of those one of those kind of legendary parts of the posse that were running the music business at that time.
0: Yeah, and uh, then then the Queen of the Clan, Lois Ferguson. I heard she oh my gosh. The
1: whip. yeah she was if you had any hope of any prayer of getting a meeting with Gerald mccracken you had to get through her first yeah she, she was the gatekeeper
0: uh she was uh at baylor events for a long time ended up planning um the commencement event for years and years she retired maybe three years ago and she does event planning wedding planning things like that now but uh i've
1: Yeah, she was, I was always impressed with her. You know, a funny story. I don't know. I'm just giving you stuff that you can use as fodder, but
0: yeah.
1: Gerald McCracken was, you know, it was a fairly large company, certainly large for Waco. Yeah. And Gerald McCracken was one of those guys that, you know, I would only really see him in my early days there at the annual Christmas party. Yeah. And I'd probably met him four or five times, but I always had to introduce myself. He couldn't remember my name, which I kind of get, you know, after I became the CEO, Thomas Nelson, it's hard to remember his name, but I never really had a meeting until I decided to take the job in Nashville at Thomas Nelson. Mm -hmm. So then I got a phone call from Lois, and she said, "Uh, Mr. McCracken wants to meet with you. Mm -hmm. I said, like, well, when? Like, now. I said, okay. So he had this absolute cave of an office that had no outside windows. It was really dark. There was no overhead lighting. It was just, you know, table lamps and ambient lighting and I went in and he was in this dark kind of office seated behind this ginormous desk yeah and he didn't come out from the desk to greet me he just said have a seat and I sat down on this sofa in front of his desk and he said to me he said well I understand from um Ernie your boss that you're leaving to take a job at Thomas Nelson and Thomas Nelson and word were huge rivals at that time Hmm. and I said yes sir I am and he said I just want you to know.'" You were making the absolute worst mistake of your career. He said, You will live to regret this. He said, Mark my words. (laughs) And so, I mean, he just had, he just kind of undressed me and told me what a bad decision this was. And I kind of left with my tail between my legs. And it was, uh, I I thought to myself, though, as I left, I thought, you know what? If I had any doubt about leaving word, that kind of confirmed it. I'm glad I'm leaving.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I've got, um, I've got two questions and I think they can kind of transition us into talking about the book. Okay. So two questions to transition us. Um, Where was the vision at word? Was it top down from McCracken or by then had it spread into kind of the lower ranks?
1: You know, I don't, I don't remember ever seeing any kind of vision in the sense of what I talk about in the book. You know, nothing written, nothing uh, specific about the future, just a lot of enthusiasm and excitement about growing the company, yeah. which is, you know, good in its own right, but it's definitely not what I talk about in the book.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and that is what I mean whenever I'm, I'm using the word vision is I want to use your definition for it. Okay, cool. um, and so And so my second question is, Um, back then was really this time when a lot of people look back to the best Baylor, the golden age of Baylor. You know, everybody thinks their years at Baylor are the golden age of Baylor. But um, when you were there in those mid-70s, where was the vision at Baylor?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Certainly, I would have absorbed it, you know, as a student, sort of by osmosis. Yeah. But not because I was think it was sort of the, all the collective inputs. It was everything from my chapel experience to at that time the Baptist Student Union yeah. to my online experience with, I mean, my on-campus experience with the navigators to the other students that I was, you know, enrolled with. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that there was anything specific. Yeah. Except that I, it does. I I do remember feeling optimistic about the future, and. Uh, glad to be a part of that community and privileged certainly to be a part of that community. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. Did you ever, did you ever feel um, the, the trickle down or the greatness of Abner McCall?
1: No, but he was like, almost like George Washington or something, you know I mean? Like just a legendary bigger than life kind of person.
0: Yeah. My, uh, my favorite story about McCall proves just how, well it's a really good example of to call him George Washington of just how humble he is. Yeah. Um he he would walk campus, you know, in between meetings or to go to lunch or something like that. And there are those pecan trees on Fountain Mall right down there at the end of mm-hmm. Moody. Um, and he would stop and fill up his pockets full of those pecans. And whenever he got bored in a meeting, everyone knew because he would pull out some of those pecans and start <laughs> crunching them. And you knew that that meant hurry up with whatever you were talking about. That's an awesome oh. story. Yeah, yeah, but he was just—he was just a, a humble dude. So, okay, so let's let's swap over to talking um, about uh, the book. Okay. And uh, the first thing that I noticed in reading this one is that there's a lot of new stuff in this. I, I mm. didn't really feel like I had intersected with a lot of these stories, or maybe I'd heard the beginning or the end of the stories in previous podcasts or blogs um, or books. Um, uh, is this is this leaning into this topic of vision, is this really coming about because um, of where you spend most of your time now?
1: Yeah, I think my the the the, where I spend my time has shifted in the last three years in a major way. So, so much of my time before was just sort of kind of, you know, behind the curtain writing, or podcasting and sending stuff out. But I didn't have a lot of direct interactions with customers or clients because um, I'd pretty much withdrawn from public speaking because I didn't really like to travel. And so when I first left Thomas Nelson in 2011, for the first two, two and a half years, I was speaking 60 times a year because I thought that's what I wanted to do. But then I discovered traveling is exhausting. I didn't like being away from my family. You know, I now have nine grandkids. I don't remember how many I had at that time five daughters, all of them live, you know, kind of in this general area where I live in Nashville. Yeah. And so I didn't like being away. So I wasn't really having that direct interaction. Well, then we started doing our own conferences. So we, we did a conference for a number of year, years called Best Year Ever. Yeah. And then we did the Free to Focus Conference. But where this content really came to fruition was in my coaching practice, which started about three years ago. So we have a program called Business Accelerator. Uh, more information at businessaccelerator.com, but we have about 500 now 500 business owners um, or entrepreneurs who meet with me on a quarterly basis in Nashville. I meet with 50 of them at a time, 50 in a cohort for all day for an all day intensive workshop. And so that's, and we had, I do that for, for five days in a row, then the weekends off and then four days in a row.
2: Hmm.
1: So that's, every quarter. It's coming up here in March again. And then I've got two other coaches also now, and we'll have three more online by the end of this year because we're growing that fast. So these are typically people that are, uh, they've got a business that's taken off to the extent where they can pay us, they pay us $15,000 a year to be part of this program. And there's other support that happens in between these quarterly coaching sessions. So it was just in the interaction with these clients and me teaching what I learned as the CEO at Thomas Nelson and my whole career there at Thomas Nelson, which I was there, I think, collectively, total of 17 years. And then uh, what I learned in starting, you know, building a platform and starting this business from 2011. And one of the things that I always came back to was, it's got to start with vision. And I think one of the biggest influences on my life was Dr. Stephen Covey. And habit number two, and the seven laws was begin with the end in mind. And so, you know, I owe a huge debt to him for the idea behind this book because I knew vision was important. I kind of stumbled into it when I was the general manager of Nelson Books. And then, of course, when I started this business, I said, I have got to get clearer on what it is I'm trying to build. And even though that's morphed and changed a lot over the last, you know, several years, uh, I started at least with a destination in mind. And so it came out of that work with with, the book came out of that work with clients who really struggled, but we saw huge, massive growth in their businesses and them getting control of their lifestyle uh, by getting clear on what they wanted. Yeah. So those average clients, you know, these are metrics we track every year. And uh, currently, in the first 12 months of the program, our average client grows their business by 62%, but they shave 11 hours off their average work week.
0: That's fantastic.
1: And I would attribute that first and foremost to having clarity about what they want, having a vision.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really clear that it's such an important thing uh, to you, but it's also a thing you think is so important to those leaders. Um, And, you know, it's kind of like uh, on the bottom of the rubber ducky, it says, not a life saving device. You know, we (laughs) learn lessons based off of past experiences and lawsuits. Um, Can you talk about a time, and maybe it was at words like we talked about earlier, can you talk about a time uh, when you really wished that you could have sent yourself this book that you're about, uh, that you just wrote?
1: You know, honestly, anytime I took a new job, Mm. you know, whether it was when I became the marketing director of that uh, department at word Um, whether it was when I moved into the editorial department and there was no clear vision there, you know, we were just very opportunistically driven. And I think that what happens to a lot of leaders as they begin to become successful is that opportunities accelerate and multiply Mm -hmm. and without a vision, Unfortunately, a lot of things show up that are really distractions masquerading as opportunities. But if you don't have a vision, if you're not clear about the destination, then you have no filter by which to differentiate you know, the opportunities from the distractions, and you end up saying yes to everything. That was our undoing at Wagamuth and Hyatt. And I think for every business that uh, fails, somewhere baked into that is a lack of clarity about vision. I, th- I think the other thing that a vision does that were, would have helped me in a number of these different situations is attracting the right people mm. and repelling the wrong ones.
0: So it sounds, um, I think a lot of times when we think about vision, vision is this thing that's the, the fullest extent of what we can imagine. But it really sounds like your perspective is it's as much a a target of where we're going as it is guardrails on the side of the road to keep us on the right path.
1: It is. I think I think what you're trying to define and in a written form is a bigger, better future for the enterprise. Yeah. And you know, we recommend that it be written, that the time horizon is three to five years out, that, you know, if it's longer than that, everything's changing so much that it becomes Mostly guesswork. If it's less than that, it's probably not strategic. But to write it in the present tense as though it were actually happening, so you can begin to visualize it, can begin to create it. And this is one of the things I learned from just studying um, performance coaching and athletics. You know, is that one of the things that's that is as important as practice on the field is the mental rehearsal component. You know, and I remember a story. I don't tell this in the book, but a story of Michael Phelps. Uh, a journalist, a sports journalist was asking him why he was just seem to be staring off in space but at, at, before this race. And he said, are you rehearsing how you're going to finish? And he said, no. He said, I'm rehearsing every single stroke. Hmm. And so that's kind of the value of a vision is kind of pre-rehearsing or re-rehearsing what's going to happen. And that's why we encourage people to write it in the present tense yeah. using those four categories that I talk, talk about in the book. Future of your team, future of your product, future of your market, marketing, and the future of your impact.
0: And now it's it's really uh, well defined uh, in the book. It's a very clear process that you're calling the the vision script, and the tool you're creating is called the Vision Scripter. Correct? Right. Yeah. Um, So, but the the version of this that you created in Nelson Books uh, that was, if I remember right, that was just ten things. Right. Yeah. It was was ten. Yeah, it
1: was a, a very prototype version of this. Yeah. You know, the good news is that it was written. And the good news is it was written in the present tense. But all I did was write down a series of 10 bullets, what I wanted to be true about the future. Yeah. And uh, as I tried to imagine that bigger, better future for Nelson Books, you know, I was writing down very practical things like, uh, you know, I wanted to see five New York Times bestsellers per year, because I knew that that would really drive the profitability of the business. Because once you get scale in publishing, the profit is just crazy. But then uh, the other thing I, I envisioned was my team was drowning from overwork. We were a, a small team producing about 120 books a year. And part of my vision was to cut the number of books we were producing in half, actually by more than half, we cut it down to 48 books a year because I wanted to give more focus to quality in the editorial process and more attention to marketing so that every book had a better chance of succeeding. And that also drove down the cost, and that was a phenomenally successful formula that I took beyond that division after I became the CEO. We we used that pretty much across the board yeah. you know, to prune everything so that we could make it perform better.
0: Yeah, that was 20 years ago. But do you remember if the list was like, a hundred and you called it back to 10 or were you really able to crystallize those 10, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I we were publishing a hundred, are, are you talking about the 10, the 10, the 10 things you set out to accomplish it at uh, within the division? Yeah.
1: I don't know. I, 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 remember I, I went off, I did like a private retreat yeah. and uh, I just wrote down, I just did a brain dump. You know, I took with me the financials from the division, our editorial plan for the next couple of years, a few other documents, you know, our organizational charts at the time, And I just started writing down everything I could think of. And then I started organizing that, culling it, pruning it. And that's where I came up with the 10 list or 10 items on the list. And then I went back to my team. And this is something I encourage in the book too. You know, I didn't come back like Moses from Mount Sinai. You know, here's the 10 things. Yeah. And, you know, God revealed this to me in a vision. No, he didn't. You know, it was, it was much more like, Hey guys, this is something I've cooked up. This is something I'd like to see in the future. And I'm pretty enthusiastic about it. If we could pull this off, this would be incredible. And so I got them jazzed about it. But I also said, said, I'm sure there's things I'm missing, things that I don't have quite right. Some of you have been here a lot longer than I have. And I need you to look at it and give me feedback because I want us to collectively own this. And I can't do this without you. So I began in that process kind of unwittingly to transfer ownership of the vision so that it wasn't just you know, my vision, the boss's vision, but it was our collective vision. And I started kind of with my inner circle, my direct reports. And then I rolled it out to the next group and I call this cascading communication in the book. And then finally the whole team. And I, I was really surprised. I mean the morale of the team was incredibly low at that point because not only had we not earned a bonus in a couple of years because our performance was so bad, but we were kind of the scourge of that company because we were pulling the entire company's performance down and the morale was super low. So the thought of turning that around, and maybe earning bonuses and getting on a positive footing was very motivational to everybody. And so everybody, I mean, just bought in, you know, as far as I know, and went to work, you know, and so, you know, we were able to turn that thing around in half the time that I thought it would take. And I think, again, it goes back to the clarity of the vision and the fact that people were enrolled in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, you you spend an entire chapter. You spend a lot of time talking about like selling that vision. Um, Yeah, and uh, from the perspective of somebody that's I'm 26, Um, I don't have a lot of people to sell down to, uh, but I'm very vision driven, and a lot of people that graduated with me that are now in those you know uh, upper level but still young professionals, they've got people to sell up to. What's your advice for selling the vision up? Uh, whenever you have people on both sides of you, on the yeah,
1: I think it, I think the first thing you got to remember is that the most popular radio station on earth is W I I F M. What's in it for me? That's what everybody's listening to. I've been saying that since I wrote my book Platform, but it's true. And you can sell anything to your boss. I don't care if if you need additional resources, if you want to create or modify the position that you have if you want to raise whatever it is you can sell anything as long as you help them get what they want how is what you're trying to sell going to get them what they want if you can if you can do that you can sell the vision and so when it comes to the vision i think you got to you got to ask yourself how is my vision for this department you john how is this vision for whatever department you're running how is that going to make the whole enterprise help help your get your boss what he wants well first of all you got to know what your boss wants right and so some bosses want esteem with their boss some bosses want you know public acclaim some bosses just want more money and more profit whatever it is you got to figure that out and you and if you can sell this as helping them get what they want it's an easy yes
0: yeah yeah, and then um, like we talked about, you you actually have a tool that you've created for this uh, that you called the the Vision Scripter. Uh, yes. Can you tell us where people can find that online?
1: Okay, so we've, cor- we've created a, a special URL for Baylor Yeah. and it's called com slash Baylor, clever. And uh, people can buy the book at any retail outlet they want. doesn't matter. Yeah. They bring the receipt back, enter the number in their and they'll get free a whole bunch of bonuses. It's about $600 worth of bonuses, but they'll get, for example, the Audible book, you know, me reading the book. Yeah. They'll get the uh, Kindle version of the last, my last book, Free to Focus, and they'll get this tool called the Vision Scripter. And it's an online tool that they'll get access to that essentially walks them through a series of prompts because people that are not writers, you know, people that are not you and me, yeah. uh, they look at a blank screen and freak out right? I mean, I I still freak out. I'm a writer and I still freak out. (laughs) Exactly. So, uh, so what I tried to create was a series of prompts and I actually have some of these in the book, but I wanted this to be as simple as paint by number. And because I'm, what I'm, I'm desperate to communicate is that being a vision driven leader is not about charisma. It's not about some special gift of clairvoyance. It's not about any special talent. You know, mere mortals, people like us can be visionary if they have a process. And so that process is the vision scripture tool, and that'll walk them through it. And when they get through that, they'll have 90% of the first draft of their vision complete.
0: So we, we kind of hit on it and I know we're, we're getting ready to wrap up. Um, but, uh, we hit on how vision connects to business accelerator. Um, and, uh, as you're moving forward, is that going to be even more of your role, uh, in this? Because I mean, you guys have a, have a, in the, ver- in the version that I have, maybe not in the final version, you guys have some huge goals on that final statement. Um, some, some big, big initiatives, um, how are y'all preparing now? I mean, as this book on vision goes out, how are y'all, you know, preparing to make this vision happen? What are those steps you're taking? What does the day Man. by day with vision look like?
1: Yeah. So, uh, the strategic planning process for us, which we do every year begins with looking at the vision and fine tuning it. And then we try to distill that vision down after we do a you know SWOT analysis we do we distill that down into our strategic priorities over the next three years so it's a lot easier after you've done this the first time because now we're just fine-tuning yeah then we have to distill that down to a set of annual goals for this next year in other words to accomplish this vision and our vision is a is a three to five year vision Mm -hmm. then what do we have to do this year to get there and then we break that down by the quarterly goals And then we break that down further in what each team member does into weekly priorities and daily actions.
2: Yeah.
1: So that linkage between vision and daily actions is what drives execution. You know, there's, there's three essential things that have to happen in a corporation for you to be able to execute at a high level and scale exponentially. You got to have vision. You got to have alignment around the vision so that you can eliminate sideways energy and really focus and concentrate all your resources on this uh, clear objective. And then once you have vision and alignment, you can drive execution. If you don't have that, if you don't have the vision and the alignment then execution becomes people overwhelmed, doing a whole lot of work, a lot of sideways energy, a lot of fake work, people really busy, but it just seems like you're treading water. You're not really moving forward. Yeah. So for us, um, you know, we did, I don't talk about this in the book, but you know, we've announced succession plan for me. You know, so my daughter will become the CEO on January the 1st, 2022. And so we're moving actively every year as a step-down plan for me. I will continue to write books. I'll continue to coach uh, a couple of our groups with Business Accelerator. And I'll continue to do public speaking. But uh, she's going to take over all the operational responsibilities of the business. That's part of how we're scaling.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I a while back I did the math on how many days in a row you're doing business accelerator, and I was like, this is not sustainable for him. I was so to read that y'all are tearing that down to where you're, uh, I guess, less accessible. That was that was like yeah. an inevitable thing coming.
1: Well, yeah. really, you know, and unfortunately, this is this is fortunate and unfortunate. But when I first started the business, I built it on my personality, right? Yeah. I was the face of the brand. I still am kind of the face of the brand. But the good news about that is it's fat you can build trust faster when you do that because people want to relate to people, not an institution. Yeah. The bad news is is that you create a business if you're not careful or a brand that's dependent upon you as the personality, so you can never extract yourself from it. So one of the things that we've really tried to do over the last three to four years is decouple my personality from the brand. So we have the faux focus planners. You know, I'm not that involved in the promotion of that anymore. In fact, all the tutorial videos are done by one of my colleagues. That's the biggest part of our business. Business Accelerator, we're bringing online other coaches so that ultimately I want to teach one high-level group and that's it.
0: Last question. Okay. Um, Over the weekend, we, the Baylor Line Foundation, had our 55th Annual Hall of Fame uh, Awards Banquet. And it was the best and brightest of Baylor all in one room together. There were 370-something. We gave away 11 awards. Uh, guys like Lyndon Olson, who was uh, an ambassador to Sweden under Clinton and on several uh, different uh, committees he's one of the largest fundraisers for the democratic party um and uh people like uh somebody you went to school with bob darden who's written oh yeah book, sure like 26 books and has the baylor black gospel restoration project he was, he was in the, the wake of tribune for a long
1: time right yeah yeah
0: guy. yeah yeah he was he was there uh, and then at billboard and um what was the satire magazine Wittenberg door.
1: Wittenberg door. Yeah. Oh my gosh.
0: (laughs) So Okay. So anyways, so while I had all these people in the room, um, I knew I was working on this story and a couple other stories. So I tried to grab snippets from people uh, over and over from the the three or four stories I'm working on. Um, And every single person that I talked to that knew you either when you were at Baylor or watched your career, every single one of them, it was probably 12 Uh, people total that were able to answer that, um, they all used the exact same word. I didn't coach them. I didn't, you know, like Mm. play my way into it. And they all used the word ambitious. And most of them said, he's the most ambitious person I have ever heard of. Some of them said, he's the most ambitious person I've ever met. One of them said, that's not always a good thing, but it's worked out for Mike. Um, So... (laughs) Uh, my question, my last question is, uh, if I were to develop a grand unified theory of Michael Hyatt, that time at Baylor where you got that, you know, vision experience kind of, you know, matriculated into you, um, is vision that grand unified theory, every ounce of your success, would you say that that's really built around vision and either not having it and finding it or figuring out that it was that thing that you needed
1: yeah i i would say that what drives my ambition is that vision yeah so in other words when i get when i get clarity about a future that i want to create i don't care if it's in my marriage or my relationship with my kids or my physical health or my business i just i it it accelerates progress toward that and it just like has a tractor pull like a magnetic pull toward that And so, yeah, I've never really thought about it like that since you brought it up. And I'm not sure that, by the way, ambition is always a good thing either. And one of the things I've had to learn over the years was to temper that and not be sort of at the mercy of my ambition, but let my ambition serve me. Because there was, I mean, I I could go into lots of stories there, but, but yeah, I think if you were thinking of a grand theory, a unifying theory of me, I think
0: the vision is the thing. So that's my interview with the one and only Michael Hyatt. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you're interested in the resources we mentioned or how to follow Michael, you can find lots of links in the show notes. Join me next time for a conversation with Baylor Line Magazine's one and only, and one of my very favorite writers, colleagues, and just all-around general great person, Sophia Alejandro. Uh, Sophia contributed a fascinating and thought-provoking piece to the 2020 fall Baylor line magazine. And I'm so excited for you to hear our discussion over that article, how it was developed and what Sophia thinks it can do for the Baylor family. Make sure to click the follow button to make sure you get each show in your feed, wherever you listen to podcasts. And also if you haven't reviewed our podcast yet, could you do that for me right now? You're one of our very best sources for new listeners and we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can post your review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this right now. We're eager to hear from you, and we do read every single review. Whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, your reviews help us make the podcast better and remain your voice in the Baylor family. Our show is produced by the Baylor Line Foundation, with audio production by Michael Echterling. Research is by Rachel Cooper. Our marketing director is Kaylee Davis, with additional support from Sofia Alejandro. Special thanks to Tony Peterson, Bob Darden, and Alan Holt. I'm Jonathan Platt.